Welcome to another edition of The Policy Shop, a podcast for the Illinois Policy Institute. I'm Joe Kaiser, and on today's episode, weeks after the landmark Supreme Court case Janus versus AFSCME, Liberty Justice Center Director of Litigation Jacob Hubert goes into detail on what it was like to be at the Supreme Court the day of that decision, when he and plaintiff Mark Janus scored a major free speech victory for workers across the country. Hubert also debunks many of the misconceptions about the case and explains how he thinks public sector workers might react now that they have their First Amendment rights restored. That analysis that you'll only find right here begins right now. I must have been pretty not, nerve-wracking might not be the right word, but for you, having worked on this for, for so long and the utmost importance, and you understand the gravity of the whole thing, that week leading up to it must have been, you know, kind of tense and, and kind of, I guess, exciting from your perspective. So what was the week, the week like leading up to it? Yeah, well, when you have a case at the U.S. Supreme Court, you don't know when you're going to get your decision normally. This case was argued at the end of February, and then the decision could come theoretically any time after that. So all through May and June, we knew there were days on which the Supreme Court would release some decisions, and you don't know whether one day is going to be your day or not. So we had throughout those months a bunch of Mondays where we just sitting there refreshing our computers, uh, waiting to see if the decision came down, knowing it probably wouldn't come until later, but, but not being sure. So we had lots of days where we thought we might get a decision in this case. But then it came down to the end of June when the court had one week left to issue decisions. And so we knew it was going to be one day that week. And so we were able to go to Washington to be there for the decision. And so then on the Monday of that week, uh, we were in the courtroom, uh, went in really early because uh, we wanted to have a good seat and be able to have one and be there for it. And you sit, you got to sit in this room, the courtroom, for like an hour beforehand. You can't really say anything. It's totally quiet. And you just have to watch the clock waiting for the justices to come in. And then they did come in on that Monday, and they issued decisions in other cases. And so we'd been all geared up in case the decision came, and then we had nothing. So we had nothing to do but wait for the next day. And we went in the next day, uh, sat there waiting for most of an hour. The justices came in, and it still wasn't our decision. We got to hear uh, the justices deliver impassioned opinions in the big immigration case, uh, but by the time they were doing that, they knew, we knew it wasn't going to be our case that day, uh, but we did know that it would have to be the next day, which was the last day, the Wednesday of that week, June 27th. And so on June 27th, it was a very different feeling going into the courtroom. Every day there was had been some you know eagerness and anticipation knowing that it could be the day, but when you know it is the day, when you know that uh, you are not going to come out of that Supreme Court building without a decision. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a whole other level of uh, intensity and anticipation. And so we went in, we sat there once again, and then the, uh, the justices filed in and we heard Chief Justice Roberts say, uh, 
Justice Alito will have the opinion of the court in case number such and such, Janus versus American Federation of Municipal State and County Employees. And with those words, we knew uh, that we were going to win. We knew if we would, if Justice Alito had the opinion, that meant we win the case. And so that's when it became very, very real in a way that it hadn't been before, uh, because. I mean, this was it was the moment we sort of dreamed of back in early 2015 when we filed this case for Mark Janus. We thought the the ideal, if everything went perfectly, we'd get to the Supreme Court and we'd get that decision from Justice Alito saying that workers can't be forced to pay union fees. Government workers can't. And, and that's what happened. Justice Alito started spelling it all out, and he basically said back to us everything we had said to the court in our brief and explaining that unions bargaining with the government is political speech, and under the First Amendment, you can't make government workers pay for that speech. Uh, and so it, it, was a, it was a perfect decision. It gave us everything we wanted. And uh, uh, so obviously it was incredibly exciting being there and hearing that. And then when, once it was done, we, uh, we had to hear Justice Kagan's dissent in the case, in which she said reasons why she thought we were wrong, but that didn't matter because her side did not prevail. And then uh, we had to sit through a final decision related to water rights that the court really couldn't even be bothered to explain in detail because it was too tedious. Uh, but uh, after that, uh, we exited the courtroom together, and as I was uh, standing next to Mark Janice, and we were going down those Supreme Court steps, there were supporters out there, Mark supporters, holding signs saying, stand with Mark, and they were all cheering together, thank you, Mark, thank you, Mark, and that was, uh, that was a pretty incredible moment. I, I turned to Mark and said something like, this is pretty great, isn't it? And and he had to agree. Uh, it was pretty incredible. Now, you said you'd been working on it for years, but and you obviously the whole time understood the importance of everything, but when did it really hit you, the impact you guys had made? Uh, I, I think really just the two key moments were hearing Justice Alito start to deliver that opinion and realizing this is really happening. You know, uh, for most of the case, most of any case, you're just kind of like writing your little papers and sending them into the court and you know, hoping something comes of it someday. And and it's all a little abstract and it's all a little hard to imagine that it's going to have some concrete impact because you're just doing your legal work like you always do it. But once you hear him saying that, you know that this is going to change a lot of things in the country. And then when we walked out and saw those supporters and saw the media and got those questions, uh, that that's when it really hit, I think, for uh, uh, all of us. So let's work backward then because you, you said you, you met Mark in, in 2015 and started working on this case. There's a case before this, Friedrichs versus the California Teachers Association, which was it had the same kind of uh, um, rhetoric around it, the same the same matter of importance. Before, um, unfortunately, um, the, the, the the Supreme Court dynamics changed when Antonin Scalia died, um, and, and and that case was deadlocked. Um, what what happened? You, when you first met Mark Janis, what was his story? Um, how did he approach you, and how 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 did he convey his his gripe with the union, his gripe with um, his First Amendment rights being violated? Well, we've heard from lots of workers over the years, state workers, that they don't like being forced to pay money to ask me to be allowed to do their jobs. But it's one thing to not like that and complain about it. It's another thing to be willing to put your name on a lawsuit challenging it 
and being willing to take it to the Supreme Court if necessary. Uh, as you mentioned, there was there have been other cases bringing up this issue. Uh, so in 1977, the Supreme Court issued a decision in a case called Abood versus Detroit Board of Education, where the court said you can make government workers pay union fees as a condition of their employment. The court said you can't make workers pay for certain union political activities, things we might call electioneering, like money for political campaigns, but the court said you can make workers pay for their proportionate share of the union's cost of bargaining on their behalf. And the court thought that struck an appropriate balance that respected First Amendment rights. They thought it was, you know, we're not making people pay for politics, supposedly, but we're making them pay their share of the cost of bargaining. And, uh, Apparently, the court thought that struck a good balance, but there are some problems with that uh, that some of the justices recognized at the time and that more justices recognized over time. One problem is that it really doesn't protect workers from paying for unions' political speech because everything a public sector union does is political. Even when it's bargaining with the government, that's political speech because the union tells the government things like how much it should spend on workers' salaries, what kind of pension benefits it should provide, and how it should run its programs, and those are political topics. If anybody else talks to the government about those things, everybody recognizes that as political speech. It's and lobbying. we call it Exactly. We call it lobbying. Uh, and the court in Abood tried to justify this in part by saying, well, we have to stop workers from free riding off the union's efforts. If we let, if we let them not pay fees, then they'll get the benefits without paying, and that's free riding, and it's not fair. And there's problems with that. Uh, one problem is some workers don't want the union's representation in the first place. They'd rather represent themselves. And so by having the union bargain on their behalf, you're actually harming them because you're taking away their ability to bargain for themselves. And then you just injure them again when you make them pay fees for this bargaining that they don't want in the first place. So that's one problem with that whole free rider thing. And another problem with it is Free riding, just preventing free riding, just isn't a, a valid reason to violate people's First Amendment rights. I mean, there's lots of situations in which people might free ride off somebody else's efforts. Uh, the NRA, for example, uh, it lobbies for things that presumably benefit people who want to own guns in general. But they can't go to all gun owners then and say, hey, we did this stuff that benefits you, so you have to pay us. They have to go to people and say, isn't this great what we did for you? Wouldn't you like to give us money so we can do more of it? And that's how they operate, and they get by okay, and that's how every kind of organization has to operate, except unions. And so the court increasingly realized in recent years that this is a strange situation where you have this one kind of group, government unions, that can force people to pay for its political advocacy, supposedly to prevent free riding. Uh, and so... Uh, the court signaled in recent years that it recognized that this was odd and it might be willing to overturn the Abood case uh, if the right uh, case came along that presented that issue and gave the court the opportunity. And we thought the court had that opportunity in a case that it uh, took up in 2015 
in which it heard arguments in 2016 called Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association. In that case, a group of California public school teachers argued that forcing them to pay union fees as a condition of their employment violated their First Amendment rights to freedom of speech and freedom of association, and they argued that the court should overturn Abood and protect them from having to pay those fees. And uh, the Supreme Court took that up, and we thought that was going to resolve this issue. But meanwhile, there were other cases in the courts presenting the same issue. And one of those cases was our case that we brought on behalf of Mark Janus, where we were arguing that forcing him as an Illinois state employee to pay union fees violated his First Amendment rights. And we filed that case in the federal uh, district court here in Chicago. Uh, And then after we did that, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the Friedrichs case. And so our case was put on hold. The The court here said, oh, well, it looks like Friedrichs is going to resolve that, so we'll just wait and see, and then that'll probably resolve this for us, and and that'll be the end of it, one way or the other. Uh, But uh, while Friedrichs was still at the Supreme Court, after arguments in that case, and I I was at the arguments in that case, and it looked to me and, and like to everybody like the court was going to strike down Abood then, based on what the justices said. Uh, But shortly after arguments, Justice Scalia died, and so that case ended in a 4-4 tie vote. And that just means that nothing happens, everything stays the same. And so uh, it turned out our case uh, wasn't resolved by Friedrichs, and so then it was immediately unfrozen then in the middle of 2016, and... uh, we told the federal court here in Chicago, the, you know, the Abood case from the Supreme Court is against us. You have to rule against us, so go ahead and do that, and we'll just move on up and try to get the Supreme Court to address this. The next level was the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, also here in Chicago. We said the same thing to them. We've got to lose here. Send us up to the Supreme Court so we can present it to them. The uh, Seventh Circuit said, yep, okay, and, and, and ruled against us promptly. And that put us in a position to petition the Supreme Court just as Neil Gorsuch was taking the bench as the new Ninth Justice. And that was very fortunate timing for us because if there hadn't been a Ninth Justice at that time, probably the Supreme Court wouldn't have wanted to take the case because with eight justices, you would have had the same 4-4 tie vote that you had in Friedrichs. But with nine, you know you're not going to have a tie, and it's going to get resolved one way or the other. And so the court uh, in 2017 agreed to take it up, heard arguments in uh, early 2018, and then we got our decision this summer. So given given the, the cases prior that gave you the impression that the court might be willing to overturn a boot and then Neil Gorsuch's appointment, were you pretty confident that when petitioning the Supreme Court that this case was going to be heard at some point? We thought, yes, we were confident that the court would want to take the case because it wanted to take it before, and it just didn't yet to issue a decision. So it would make sense that once they had nine justices, they would want to quickly take it up uh, and resolve it. And that's exactly how it played out. And, and then did you think also that with the dynamics of the court, and, and you, went to the, you went to the arguments and you heard, um, heard their arguments made uh, months, you can correct me on the timeline, but months ago now, or maybe it was even a full year ago, 
Um, did you feel leaving the the oral arguments that the court would rule in, in Mark Janice's favor? Well, it was hard to know because the liberal justices asked questions that you'd expect them to ask that suggest they're skeptical of our side. The conservative justices asked questions you'd expect them to ask that suggest that they were supportive of our side. But one conservative justice didn't say anything, and that was Neil Gorsuch, the new justice, who didn't vote in the previous case. So he came out of there really not knowing any more than we knew when we went in. We knew there were four on each side before, and we came out knowing there were apparently four on each side, not knowing where Justice Gorsuch would come down. And, of course, we wanted to think that he would uh, lean toward our side, but we really had no way to know that because he had no track record on this issue. So Mark Janice specifically, what was, obviously his argument was that his First Amendment rights were being violated. A little bit of background on him. So he's a state worker. Um, Your initial conversations with him, what was the argument that he was bringing forth? Well, Mark didn't like being forced to pay money to AFSCME just to be allowed to do his job as a state child support specialist. Uh, When he started working for the state about 10 years ago, he saw this money coming out of his checks and going to AFSCME and was shocked by it. He didn't know that he was a unionized employee and he didn't want to give money to AFSCME or have anything to do with it. And he didn't like a lot of what AFSCME was advocating for in its bargaining with the government. He saw Illinois' huge unfunded pension liability and its unpaid bills, and he believed that AFSCME was partly responsible for that because of the things that it advocated for in its bargaining, things like you know ever-increasing salaries, ever-increasing pension benefits that the state can't afford. And he didn't want to support that. He didn't feel that the union spoke for him. Uh, he thought it was wrong for the union to be demanding more and even demanding tax increases in its bargaining at a time when the private sector in Illinois was struggling. And so that was his motivation. And so uh, when he heard through a mutual friend that we were interested in challenging this in a court case, uh, he fortunately spoke up and said he was willing to do that, which is uh, incredible because uh, a lot of people uh, don't like this. A lot of people told us over the years they don't like it. But it's quite another thing to be bold enough to actually put your name on a lawsuit and uh, expose yourself to public criticism uh, rather than let somebody else do that. And it's only because of his bravery in this respect that we were able to do that at all. It absolutely is. And it's so this is what's interesting to me about this case is when you lay it out like that and you say, Let, let's take away the word union for a second, and you just say this man didn't want to pay money to a political lobbying organization that he didn't agree with as a condition of his job, anyone would, would be in agreement with you. If, if somebody was forced to pay to the NRA, the example you used prior, or Planned Parenthood, or APAC or something, and they didn't agree with it, of course they shouldn't have to. But because of the way unions have been, uh, especially in Illinois, where public sector unions are very powerful and very involved in the political process, it becomes this hot button issue. Why, why do you think it is treated differently than, let's just use the NRA example that you used prior, than any other kind of lobbying organization? Because it's clear that everything these public sector unions do in the bargaining process is political. 
Well, somehow they got these privileges written into the law over the years. Public sector unions are a relatively recent thing. We didn't even have uh, force fees for public sector unions in Illinois until the 1980s, the early 1980s, when they actually came in under a Republican governor. And people had become used to unions and union fees in the private sector, which we had had for a long time. And so they kind of just brought this into the public sector and... Uh, you know, the unions acted like, well, we should just treat this as a kind of like we treat any other union. This is just a normal thing. But it's not the same as any other union because unions in government uh, engage in lobbying through what they do and everything they do affects public policy. So it's different. And some people might not immediately recognize and appreciate that. Uh, and, and apparently that's, that's how they got away with it for so long. What, what are some of the things the union's been saying since the ruling? I mean, fear of, well, they want to admit the fear, but maybe saying uh, this is going to hurt our ability to represent our members, you know, attacking you guys as, as uh, defending billionaires and corporate interests. What, where are those arguments coming from, and how do you see those playing out? Well, they've said all kinds of things before and after this decision. Uh, one thing they, I'll say they, they don't say, they never address the actual First Amendment issue. They never say, well, actually, the First Amendment sometimes allows you to force people to give money to politics, or this isn't politics. They never, they never really address the real argument. They're always, they always try to divert it to something else. Before the decision, it was, all, it was a lot of, oh, this is going to destroy us. If we can't force people to give us money, we're just going to be destroyed. We won't be able to do anything. Uh, now they've changed that because uh, they want they want to appear strong, and it's it's not true. Uh, they still have lots of money. Uh, they still have lots of dues-paying members, and they are able to function. And so now they 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 shift between different things. A, a lot of times they just want to say, "Oh, this is this is the billionaires ganging up on this, and they're trying." The billionaires are trying to destroy our right to organize. They're trying to destroy our ability to represent working people, but. Of course, that's not what this case was about. The the only there was a worker in this case who was the plaintiff, Mark Janus, and it's really about just the right of him and other workers like him to choose. And if they choose to support a union, that's okay. They can do that. And if they choose not to, that's okay. Uh, but the unions can still, in any event, go on doing everything they've always done as far as representing workers, advocating for what they believe in. They just have to do it with money that people give them voluntarily. Another thing that's interesting that you see the union saying, especially now that the decision is over, uh, oh, this is going to make it harder for us to advocate for the progressive policies that we believe in, which is very telling uh, because that is basically an admission that these fees were going to pay for advocating political policies. They, they kind of sometimes tried to hide that before the decision. They'd act like, oh, you know, you're just paying for uh, negotiations about, you know, whether people have enough office supplies or whatever, just mundane stuff like that. Not politics. It's not political. Uh, but now afterward, of course, in trying to sort of uh, gin up support for them or whatever, they, they, try, they admit that well, it is about advocating policies. And, and of course, it always was about advocating policies, not just in collective bargaining, but through lots of other uh, forums. You know, these workers until now were forced to pay through their fees for things like union conventions where they would pass all kinds of excuse me, resolutions on all kinds of political issues that have nothing to do with the workplace. Uh, so they're pretty open about that now. Uh, and they're, they're just kind of fighting on all kinds of fronts. They're, uh, they're, trying to um, 
get workers to give them money voluntarily, obviously, because they want to keep that money coming. And also they're trying to get things enacted into law in a number of states to kind of avoid the effect of the Janus ruling and make it hard for people to stop paying union dues if they're already paying. For more background and information on the Janus case, visit IllinoisPolicy.org. If you're a public sector worker yourself and are interested in learning more about your rights and ways to opt out of your union, visit LeaveMyUnion.com for more details. Until next time, this has been The Policy Shop.